Section 20 of the Book of the Bush. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Book of the Bush by George Dunderdale. Section 20. The Two Shepherds. Part 5. I saw Mr. Aspinall and Dr. McAdam walking together arm in arm from the court. The long doctor and the little lawyer were a strange pair. Everybody knew that they were sliding down the easy slope to their tragic end, but they seemed never to think of it. Frank returned to Nyalong happier than either. He related the particulars of the trial to his friends with the utmost cheerfulness. Whether he recovered all the worldly goods which he had endowed Sicily is doubtful, but he faithfully kept his promise that there'll uh, be no more Sicilies for me. There was a demon of mischief at work on Phillips Hill at both sides of the dividing fence. Sam was poisoned by a villainous butcher. Bruin had been killed by Hugh Boyle. Maggie had eloped with a wild native to a gum tree. Joey had been eaten by pussy. Barlow had been crossed in love. And then the crowning misfortune befell the hermit. Mrs. Chisholm was a lady who gave early tokens of her vocation. At the age of seven she began to form benevolent plans for the colonies of Great Britain. She built ships of broad beans, filled them with poor families of couchwood, and sent them to sea in a washbasin landed them in a bed-quilt, and started them growing wheat. Then she loaded her fleet with a return cargo for the British pauper, one grain of wheat in each ship, and navigated it safely to Old England. She made many prosperous voyages, but once a storm arose which sent all her ships to the bottom of the sea. She sent a Wesleyan minister and a Catholic priest to Botany Bay in the same cabin, strictly enjoining them not to quarrel during the voyage. At the age of twenty, she married Captain Chisholm and went with him to Madras. There she established a school of industry for girls, and her husband seconded her in all her good works. Mr. Chalmer, the secretary, took a great interest in her school. Sir Frederick Adams subscribed twenty pounds, and the officers and gentlemen in Madras contributed in five days two thousand rupees. The school became an extensive orphanage. Mrs. and Captain Chisholm came to Australia in 1838 for the benefit of his health, and they landed at Sydney. They saw Highland immigrants who could not speak English, and they gave them tools and wheelbarrows wherewith to cut and sell firewood. Captain Chisholm returned to India in 1840, but the health of her young family required Mrs. Chisholm to remain in Sydney. Female immigrants arriving in Sydney were regularly hired on board ship and lured into a vicious course of life. Mrs. Chisholm went on board each ship and made it her business to protect and advise them, and begged the captain and agent to act with humanity. Some place of residence was required in which the new arrivals could be sheltered 
until respectable situations could be found for them, and in January 1841 she applied to Lady Gipps for help. A committee of ladies was formed, and Mrs. Chisholm at length obtained a personal audience from the governor, Sir George Gipps. He believed she was laboring under an amiable delusion. He wrote to a friend, I expected to have seen an old lady in a white cap and spectacles who would have talked to me about my soul. I was amazed when my aide introduced a handsome, stately young woman who proceeded to reason the question as if she thought her reason, and experience too, worth as much as mine. Sir George at last consented to allow her the use of a government building, a low wooden one. Her room was seven feet by seven feet. Rats ran about it in all directions, and then alighted on her shoulders. But she outgeneraled the rats. She gave them bread and water the first night, lit two candles, and sat up in bed reading Abercrombie. There came never less than seven, nor more than thirteen rats, eating at the same time. The next night she gave them another feast, seasoned with arsenic. The home for immigrants given her by Sir George had four rooms, and in it, at one time, she kept ninety girls who had no other shelter. About six hundred females were then wandering about Sydney, unprovided for. Some slept in the recesses of the rocks on the government domain. She received from the ships in the harbor sixty-four girls, and all the money they had was fourteen shillings and three halfpence. She took them to the country, traveling with a covered cart to sleep in. She left married families at different stations, and then sent out decent lasses who should be married. In those days the dead bodies of the poor were taken to the cemetery in a common rubbish cart. By speeches and letters, both public and private, and by interviews with influential men, Mrs. Chisholm sought help for the immigrants both in Sydney and England where she opened an office in 1846. In the year 1856, Major Chisholm took a house at Nyalong, near Phillips School. Two of the best scholars were John and David. When David lost his place in the class, he burst into tears, and the Blakes and the Boyles laughed. The Major spoke to the boys and girls whenever he met them. He asked John to tell him how many weatherboards he would have to buy to cover the walls of his house, which contained six rooms and a lean-to, and was built of slabs. John measured the walls and solved the problem promptly. The major then sent his three young children to the school, and made the acquaintance of the master. Mrs. Chisholm never went to Nyalong, but the major must have given her much information about it, for one day he read a portion of one of her letters which completely destroyed Philip's peace of mind. It was to the effect that he was to open a school for boarders at Nyalong, and, as a preliminary, marry a wife. The major said that if Philip had no suitable young lady in view, Mrs. Chisholm, he was sure, would undertake to produce one at a very short notice. She had the whole matter already planned, and was actually canvassing for pupils among the wealthiest families in the colony. The major smiled benevolently, and said it was of no use for Phillips to think of resisting Mrs. Chisholm. When she had once made up her mind, 
Everybody had to give way, and the thing was settled. Philip, too, smiled faintly, and tried to look pleased, dissembling his outraged feelings. But he went away in a state of indignation. He actually made an attack on the Twelve Virtues, which seemed all at once to have conspired against his happiness. He said, If I had not kept school so conscientiously, this thing would never have happened. I don't want boarders, and I don't want anybody to send me a wife to Nyalong. I am not, thank God, one of the royal family, and not even Queen Victoria shall order me a wife. In that way the lonely hermit put his foot down and began a countermine, working as silently as possible. During the Christmas holidays, after his neighbor Frank had been jilted by Sicily, he rode away and returned after a week's absence. The Major informed him that Mrs. Chisholm had met with an accident and would be unable to visit Nyalong for some time. Philip was secretly pleased to hear the news. Outwardly, he expressed sorrow and sympathy, and nobody but himself suspected how mean and deceitful he was. At Easter he rode away again, and returned in less than a week. Next day he called at McCarthy's farm and dined with the family. He said he had been married the previous morning, before he started for Nyalong, and had left his wife at the waterholes. McCarthy began to suspect that Philip was a little wrong in his head. It was a kind of action that contradicted all previous experience. He could remember various lovers running away together before marriage, but he could not call to mind a single instance in which they ran away from one another immediately after marriage. But, he said to himself, it will all be explained by and by, and he refrained from asking any impertinent questions, merely to gratify curiosity. After dinner, Gleason, Philip, and McCarthy rode into the bush with the hounds. A large and heavy old man was sighted, and the dogs struck him up with his back to a tree. While they were growling and barking around the tree, Gleason dismounted, and, going behind the tree, seized the old man by the tail. The kangaroo kept springing upwards, and at the dogs, dragging Gleason after him, who was jerking the tail this way and that to bring his game to ground, for the old man was so tall that the dogs could not reach his throat while he stood upright. Philip gave his horse to McCarthy and approached the old man with his club. "'Shoot him with your revolver,' said Gleason. "'If I let go his tail, he'll be ripping you with his toe.' "'I might shoot you instead,' said Philip. "'Better to club him. Hold on another moment.' Philip's first blow was dodged by the kangaroo, but the second fell fairly on the skull. He fell down, and Ossian, a big and powerful hound, seized him instantly by the throat and held on. The three men mounted their horses and rode away, but Philip's mare was, as usual, shying at every tree. As he came near one, which had a large branch growing horizontally from the trunk, his mare sprang aside, carried him under the limb, which struck his head and threw him to the ground. He never spoke again. After the funeral, McCarthy rode over to Rocky Waterholes to make some inquiries. He called at Mrs. Martin's residence, and he said, Mr. Philip told us he was married the day before the accident, but it seemed so strange we could not believe it. 
so I thought I would just ride over and inquire about it, for, of course, if he had a wife, she will be entitled to whatever little property he left behind. Yes, it's quite true, said Mrs. Martin. They were married, sure enough. He called here at Christmas, and said he would like to see Miss Edgeworth, but she was away on a visit to some friends. I asked him if he had any message to leave for her, but he said, oh no, only I thought I should like to see how she is getting along. That's all. Thank you. I might call again at Easter. So he went away. On last Easter Monday, he came again. Of course, I had told Miss Edgeworth about his calling at Christmas and inquiring about her, and it made me rather suspicious when he came again. As you may suppose, I could not help taking notice. But for two days, nor, in fact, the whole week, was there the slightest sign of anything like love-making between them. No private conversation, no walking out together, nothing but commonplace talk and solemn looks. I said to myself, if there is anything between them, they keep it mighty close, to be sure. On the Tuesday evening, however, he spoke to me. He said, I hope you won't mention it, Mrs. Martin, but I would like to have a little advice from you. If you would be so kind as to give it. Miss Edgeworth has been living with you for some time, and you must be well acquainted with her. I am thinking of making a proposal, but our intercourse has been so slight that I should be pleased first to have your opinion on the matter. Mr. Philip, I said, you really must not ask me to say anything one way or the other, for or against. I have my own sentiments, of course, but nobody shall ever say that I either made a match or marred one. Nothing happened until the next day. In the afternoon, Miss Edgeworth was alone in this room when I heard Mr. Philip walking down the passage and stopping at the door, which was half open. I peeped out and then put off my slippers and stepped a little nearer until through the little opening between the door and the doorpost I could see and hear them. He was sitting on the table, dangling his boots to and fro, just above the floor, and she was sitting on a low rocking chair about six feet distant. He did not beat about the bush, as the saying is, did not say, my dear, or by your leave, miss, or excuse me, or anything nice, as one would expect from a gentleman on a delicate occasion of the kind. But he said quite abruptly, how would you like to live at Nyalong, Miss Edgeworth? She was looking on the floor, and her fingers were playing with a bit of ribbon. And she was so nice and winesome and well-dressed, you couldn't have helped giving her a kiss. She never raised her eyes to his face, but I think she just looked as high as his boots, which were stained and dusty. The silly man was waiting for her to say something, but she hung down her head and said nothing. At last he said, I suppose you know what I mean, Miss Edgeworth. Yes, she said in a low voice. I know what you mean. Thank you. Then there was silence, for I don't know how long. It was really dreadful, and I couldn't think of how it was going to end. At last he heaved a big sigh and said, Well, Miss Edgeworth, there is no need to hurry. Take time to think about it. I am going to ride out, and perhaps... You will be good enough to let me know your mind when I come back. Then he just shook her hand 
and I hurried away from the door. It was rather mean of me to be listening to them, but I took as much interest in Miss Edgeworth as if she were my own daughter. "'There is no need to hurry,' he had said, but in my opinion there was too much hurry, for they were married on the Saturday, and he rode away the same morning, having to open school again on Monday. Of course Miss Edgeworth was a good deal put about when we heard what had happened through the papers, but I comforted her as much as possible. I said, as for myself, I had never liked the look of the poor man, with his red hair and freckles. I am sure he had a bad temper at bottom, for red-haired men are always hasty, and then he had a high, thin nose, and men of that kind are always close and stingy. And the stingiest man I ever knew was the Dublin man. Then his manners, you must remember, were anything but nice. He didn't waste any compliments on you before you married him, so you may just fancy what kind of compliments you would have had to put up with afterwards. And perhaps you have forgotten what you said yourself about him at Bendigo. You were sure he was a severe master. You could see sternness on his brow. And however you could have consented to go to the altar with such a man, I cannot understand to this day. I am sure it was a very bad match, and by and by you will thank your stars that you are well out of it. I must acknowledge that Miss Edgeworth did not take what I said to comfort her very kindly, and she gave me fits, as the saying is. But, bless your soul, she'll soon get over it, and will do better next time. Soon after the death of Philip, Major Chisholm and his family left Nyalong, and I was appointed clerk to the justices at Colac. I sat under them for twelve years, and during that time I wrote a great quantity of criminal literature. When a convict of good conduct in Pentridge was entitled to a ticket of leave, he usually chose the western districts as the scene of his future labors, so that the country was peopled with old Jack Bartons and young ones. Some of the young ones had been Philip's scholars, viz. the Boyles and the Blakes. They were friends of the Bartons, and old John, the ex-flogger, trained them in the art of cattle-lifting. His teaching was far more successful than that of Philip's, and, when in the course of time, Hugh Boyle appeared in the dock on the charge of horse-stealing, I was pained but not surprised. Barton, to whose farm the stolen horse had been brought by Hugh, was summoned as a witness for the crown, but he organized the evidence for the defense so well that the prisoner was discharged. On the next occasion, both Hugh and his brother James were charged with stealing a team of bullocks. But this time the assistance of Barton was not available. The evidence against the young men was overwhelming, and we committed them for trial. I could not help pitying them for having gone astray so early in life. They were both tall and strong, intelligent and alert, good stockmen, and quite able to earn an honest living in the bush. They had been taught their duty well by Philip, but bad example and bad company, out of school, had led them astray. The owner of the bullocks, an honest young boar named Cowderoy, was sworn and gave his evidence clearly. Hugh and James knew him well. They had no lawyer to defend them, and when the Crown prosecutor sat down, 
There seemed no loophole left for the escape of the accused, and I mentally sentenced them to seven years on the roads, the invariable penalty for their offense. But now the advantages of a good moral education were brilliantly exemplified. "'Have you any questions to put to this witness?' asked the judge of the prisoners. "'Yes, Your Honor,' said Hugh. Turning to Calderoy, he said, "'Do you know the nature of an oath?' The witness looked helplessly at Hugh, then at the judge and crown prosecutor, stood first on one leg, then the other, leaned down with his elbows on the edge of the witness-box, apparently staggering under the weight of his own ignorance. "'Why don't you answer the question?' asked the judge sharply. "'Do you know the nature of an oath?' Silence. Mr. Armstrong saw his case was in danger of collapse, so he said, "'I beg to submit, Your Honor, that this question comes too late, and should have been put to the witness before he was sworn. He has already taken the oath and given his evidence.' "'The question is a perfectly fair one, Mr. Armstrong,' said the judge, and, turning to the witness, he repeated, "'Do you know the nature of an oath?' "'No,' said Calderoy. The prisoners were discharged, thanks to their good education. End of Section 20 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas